Hey folks, this is Kevin. Uh, if I sound a little echoey, it's because this episode of Risk is brought to you from the guest room of my parents' condo in Cincinnati on Thanksgiving Day. Also, this episode of Risk is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. With over 20 million high-quality stock photos, illustrations, vectors, and video clips, Shutterstock helps you take your creative projects to the next level. For 30% off your new account, go to Shutterstock.com and use the offer code RISK11. And now, a word from our network, MaximumFun.org. Jesse Thorne here, proprietor of MaximumFun.org. Look, we had a great time in the Poconos and everything, but there's no way we are forgetting about our annual trip to Lake Arrowhead here in Southern California. So, unless the world ends first by Mayan prophecy, MaxFunCon West will be held May 31st through June 2nd, 2013. Join us for a showcase of elite stand-up comedy performers in the woods, plus informative classes and talks from some of the best creative minds in the nation. If you've been to MaxFunCon before, get ready to reunite with your old friends. And if you're a first-timer, get ready to make a whole ton of new ones. Registration is now open at MaxFunCon.com. So act fast. MaxFunCon pretty much always sells out, and we don't expect this year to be any different. Remember, go to MaxFunCon. And I can vouch for what the lovely Mr. Thorne was saying there. I was at the last Max Fun Con in the Poconos, and it really was a complete and total blast. Okay, that is it for the opening announcements. Now here's the show. Kids, this is Risk, the show where people tell true stories they never thought they'd dare to share. I'm Kevin Allison. This is Sean Lee behind me now. And today's episode is live from Philly. We teamed up with firstpersonarts.org down there in Philadelphia. And wow, what a wonderful group of people. What an amazing job they do, especially Liz Green. She's got phenomenal performances happening all over Philadelphia all year round. And the storytellers that she helped us put together for this show, they really got what Risk is all about. If you're new, if you are new to the podcast, you should really go back and listen to an episode called Try because I tell the story about the origins of the podcast and its reason for being. But, you know, the way I was talking about it with these storytellers from this particular night is, you know, it's like all our lives, we're so used to hearing people say, ooh, you really shouldn't talk about that subject in mixed company, 
or, oh, too much information, dude. You're making things kind of uncomfortable. Well, this show kind of rejects that whole idea, that way of thinking. And I am so honored and grateful that these storytellers had the guts to walk out on that limb and say, hey, this is my truth of my experience as I recall it, like it or not. (laughs) And so, without further ado, from Underground Arts at the Wolf Building, this is Risk, live from Philly. During the past couple of weeks, I've been hearing these stories from our Philadelphia storytellers, and Philadelphia really brings it. These stories, they are going, they're going to make you laugh. They're also probably going to make you cry. Uh, they may make your jaw drop. They may even give you a boner, even if you don't have a penis. Let us know if that, that would be unexpected. Let us know if, just shout it out if that happens to happen during the course of the evening. Oh my goodness. Well, you you should really check out the podcast because it features not just the best of the stories from these live shows, but it also features radio style stories that get very, very intimate. In fact, I do a lot of, uh, in my sex life, uh, bondage and discipline, uh, dominance and submission, and sadomasochism. So you got to check out the podcast because from week to week, you have no other way of knowing if I'm still okay. (laughs) Uh, Now tonight... I am so thrilled. There are, these stories have touched me so much in the past couple of weeks listening to them. Uh, some of these folks uh, uh, regularly work with first-person arts. Uh, our next storyteller is one of those people. He has told this story at uh, some of the storytelling shows here around town before, and I was just knocked out by it. So please let me welcome to the stage Mr. Bernardo Murillo. <laughs> This story takes place in 1991, and I was attending uh, film school back in Bogota, Colombia, in South America, where I'm from. And it was a very, very exciting, thank you, very exciting time of my life. And one of the big things that was happening to me was that I had been presented with the opportunity to come to the United States and finish my studies here. And everything, nothing was set in stone, but everything was pretty much ready. And it was almost official that I was going to be able to come to the States and finish my film studies here. And I was kind of like, every day that I got out of the house, I was like, I hope nothing happens. I can't have an accident. I can't spend too much money. Everything was very stressful. And there was a group of women in my class that were, yeah, women. And they they were developing a lot of art, and they were very active and very prolific. And they were getting a lot of responses from the art critics and the galleries, and they were putting up shows and performances, and they were amazing. Everything that they did was great. And one of the spokespersons for, for that group of women was this woman called Diana. And so everybody was attending to every lecture that they give and reading every essay that they, that they published and going to every show that they put together. And every time that they were there, they would do a little speech, and Diana was kind of like the spokesperson. And every now and then, like, I noticed that she would be like talking to me. 
It's throwing me like a little glance, and I was like, whoa, whoa, whoa. but I'm going to the United States. God damn, what's going to happen? <laughs> so I just kept a low profile. I decided I'm not going to do anything because I can't get involved in anything right now. I'm too busy. Everything is too crazy. So I kept to myself, and I was coming out of school, heading back home, and boom, I ran into Diana, and she's hanging out with this guy, Jorge, who was also in the school. And she says, what are you up to? I said, I'm nothing. What are you guys up to? He's like, uh, let's go get a cup of coffee. I was like, okay, you, me, and Jorge, okay. Let's go check it out. Let's see what happens. <laughs> so we're walking through the campus of the university, and all of a sudden I hear this incredibly loud explosion. Bah! And I'm blinded by this bright light. And I open my eyes, and I'm facing to the opposite direction that I was walking to. And I look at my arms, and they're like all like scratched up, and I'm bleeding. My ears are ringing, and I can't hear anything. And I see all these like, people running towards me, and they have the most amazing expressions on their face. And they're running past me, and I'm like, not understanding what's happening. Now it's raining, and I look up, and I feel the, the raindrops on my face. Then my hearing comes back, and I hear the sound of the, of the rain tapping on the leaves of a tree. But it's coming from below me, which is really weird, and I feel totally disoriented, and I turn around. And I realized that what has happened is that lightning has struck and it has hit this gigantic eucalyptus tree that is broken and it looks like a gigantic hand has just like hold on to it and tore it down apart. And this tree, the rain is falling on the tree and that's why I hear the sound of the rain coming from like the ground and I'm frozen. And I realized that what happened is that I'm, uh, when the lightning struck, I froze. I decided to not move. This guy, Jorge, like bolted backwards. And Diana decided to run, and she got hit by the tree. And everybody's running, and like all these students are like trying to move the tree and get her out of there. And I see her like drifting away in this tree that slowly is kind of trying to like get himself up back to position. And it's a big eucalyptus tree, and it smells delicious, and it's like the most beautiful thing I've ever seen. And I don't know if I'm paralyzed by the beauty of it or by the horror of it. And I see Diana tumbling there in the leaves. And then they move the tree up, and, and she stands up. And she looks kind of pale, and she's like, oh, well, I don't, I, don't, I don't feel too good. And she bends over like this. And there's this big branch coming out of from her back. And there's this guy standing behind her, and he's got like this awful expression on his face, and he's kind of trying to like, reach out to the branch, like not knowing what to do. And like, he grabs the branch, and she collapses, and this guy's left holding this branch. He looks like he's just going to die. And everybody freezes. And for some reason, I unfreeze at that moment. And I'm looking at everything that was kind of coming towards her, like as if she was the epicenter of this like, gigantic explosion of energy. It was coming out of like, that hole in her back. And, but now everything stops, and I'm like, and I unfreeze. And I walk to her, and I give like the 10 steps, the 10 most assertive steps that I've ever given in my life. And I walk up to her, and she's falling down, face down. Her shirt is up, and I can see her kidney. And I can see, or I don't know what, it is something red there that is moving, and I see the bone on her spine. And, 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 I, and I just, all I can think is about the future of this woman. Like, this is a woman with, like, an incredible future ahead of her, and I'm just compelled to, to lift her up. And I'm thinking, half of my brain is thinking, you, you got to get the fuck out of here before the police comes. And the other half is going towards her to pick her up, and I did something that I've never done before, and I've never been able to do it again, which is that I lifted her up, like in the movies. And then we started running, running towards the hospital. And she smelled of eucalyptus, and this is this beautiful woman that like, I'm holding, and I don't understand how I'm doing this. 
and I can see the veins on my arms are like popping out like I'm working out for years or something. And we're running through the city and uh, people are chaperoning and I, just the idea of people helping you out in a city like Bogota is like very strange feeling. I already saw them trying to move the tree out of the way and now they're running next to me like holding the cars in traffic. And it's just not the common thing that happens in there because it's, it's a tough town and it's like every man for itself down there. So, and we're trying to hail a cab and nobody wants to stop and help us. And we see a police car coming and they got their sirens on. And we're like, oh yeah, the police finally, somebody's gonna help us. And they come by and they start honking, beep, 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 beep. And they get out of the way, and they fly away. And we're like, Jesus Christ. And I'm like holding this woman and we're running towards the hospital. And like, I'm looking at her and she looks so beautiful and her black hair is like wrapped around my arm and I'm covered in blood. And she opens her eyes, she looks at me and she says, I'm so sorry, I'm so sorry, I peed my pants. And I'm like, it's okay, don't worry about that. We're gonna be fine, we're gonna make it. Finally, we make it to the hospital. And like when we get to the hospital, in the emergency room, they pull out this stretcher and I put her on the stretcher and it's like cleaning a paintbrush in a clean glass of water and it all turns red. And I think at this moment when she sees that everything is turning red around her, she realizes how how hurt she is, and she's holding onto my arm as they're pulling her away, and she's like scratching my arm as they pull her away into the emergency room. This other doctor is standing next to me, and he's like, are you okay, are you wounded, are you bleeding? And I'm like, I, I don't know. And we go into this like little room, they have a mirror there, and I take my clothes off, and I'm fine, I'm just like scratched up and stuff, and everything hurts. And I have this metallic feeling in my mouth, and uh, I'm, I'm, I'm just like in the doctor, and I have these stretch marks, under my armpits over here, which like as if I've been working out like crazy. And it's just looking at myself and not recognizing myself. And then a couple of days later, I come to visit her in the hospital and I go up there and uh, I say, oh, I wanna see Diana Camargo. And they say, no, she's, she's only family can go in and stuff. And, but if you give me your name, I'll write it down and make sure the family knows that you came to visit. And I say, oh, my name is Bernardo. And then this guy pops up and is like, you're Bernardo? And he was her father. He was like, you wanna go in, go in, man. You're like, thank you so much, it's going. So I walk in and she's lying down there and she's asleep and she's got like a broken leg and a broken arm, broken ribs. Then I hear that like this branch went right through her back and it was like a miracle, like it went in between her kidney and her spine. And if she had gotten a little bit to one side, it would been like paralyzed. And if it went a little bit to the other side, she would have her kidney punctured. And, and I'm just sitting, standing there like quiet, kind of looking at her for five minutes, she's totally out. And then I walk out, and like a couple of days later, I, uh, the whole thing came together with uh, coming to the States, and I left. And I came to the USA. And I never heard from her again, and I never knew what else happened. And years went by, I always thought about her. And then, like 12 years later, I found out that she had become a big time film producer. And she was involved in a film that was called Maria Full of Grace. So somehow through the web, as a producer, I found her email, I shot her an email, and I said, hey, congratulations, looks like you're doing great. And she wrote back to me and she said, no way, I can't believe you showed up. Like, I reappeared and she said, I'm gonna be in New York for the premiere of the film, why don't you come up? So I was like, sure, I'll be there. So I went up to New York and I showed up, it was like this big premiere lounge in, in Manhattan and I went to the theater and I got my ticket and they treated me like a king. I was like, oh, I'm Bernardo, I'm Andalese. And they were like, oh, Bernardo was like the V. And they had all these like fancy looking women hanging out with me, going like, would you like a drink? Would you like some chips? You know, they walked me up to a balcony. Then the movie was over and they, they said, um, we're assuming you're going to the after party. 
And I was like, yeah, sure, how do I get there? And I was like, no, there's a car ready for you. I was like, wow. So there was this big limo for me, and I like, took the limo to HBO Studios, and it was all, oh, it was just like a fantastic evening. And I was still thinking, you know, she's gonna be, this is going to be like the craziest li- night of her life. I'm probably not going to be able to see her. And then I found her there. And we just kind of like looked at each other and like she grabbed my face and I grabbed her face and we just, everybody wants to know what she said. And she didn't say shit and I didn't say it. We just like looked at each other like, hey. And we, we and it was, it was the second time I saw her in 12 years. And then she went back to South America and I kept living here doing my thing. And like a couple of years ago, she showed up again. Um, her, her husband had passed away. And uh, she had dropped everything and she went to New York to mourn. She got all her money out of the bank and she's going to go to New York for like six months and disappear. And she showed up again and she called me and I met her in New York and then she came down to Philadelphia. She stayed at my house. And it was just kind of incredible because you think about a friendship and I don't know, I don't know what her favorite, I've never been to her house. I don't know what her favorite color is. I don't know who her favorite writer is. I don't know what music she likes. I know because she told me that she thinks about me, and I think about her a lot. I've never seen her scar. And it was a beautiful thing to have a friendship that is based on this uh, weird kind of acquiescence. We just share silence and like a knowledge that we were connected for some strange reason. Three times, three dates. That's all it takes to fall in love with a woman. <laughs> Thank you. Bernardo Murillo! Something else. Uh, Our next storyteller is, uh, I'm so thrilled to have her on. She is the executive director of the First Person Arts Organization. She actually wanted me to remind you that you should go to firstpersonarts.org to find out what's going on here in Philly throughout the rest of the year, shows like this. So uh, keep up with it. It's a great, it's a wonderful organization. And she is just a beautiful, beautiful lady. Uh, I love that we've met and I love that we've been able to work together. Uh, Please welcome Ms. Jamie Brunson. Y'all feeling good tonight? All right. Okay, so like Kevin said, my name is Jamie. And um, my mom was this cross between a black Marilyn Monroe and Angela Davis. So if you can imagine this drop-dead gorgeous, voluptuous, light-skinned African-American woman with fire-red hair in the front row of a Malcolm X rally, okay? (laughs) Clenched fist in the air, shouting out black power movement slogans. That was my mom. Now my dad, he was this kind of tall, dark and handsome, kind of swarthy bad boy, shrouded in mystery. And I mean a lot of mystery, because to this day, I still don't know what he did for a living, okay? (laughs) And he talked in parables like Jesus, but, but not really like Jesus because he never answered your question, right? So I'd say, so dad, you know, I'm on my way to work. 
uh, you on your way to work? And he'd say, kiddo, where you going? I been. What the hell does that mean? Okay, I just don't get that. So, you know, they meet and I'm born. And I'm supposed to be named after my dad, James. And I'm really glad that didn't happen, right? Because, and don't laugh because I have an aunt whose name was Jimmy. And we called her Aunt Jimmy. She had hands the size of pie tins, okay? So you did not want to be Aunt, J Aunt James. Um, <laughs> so, uh, you know, so I'm, I'm born. And uh, when I was two years old, my dad murdered my mother. Yeah, yeah. Um, but she didn't die right away. She lingered for about 30 days as a paraplegic, and then she finally succumbed to pneumonia. Yeah. Now, I know it doesn't make any sense, right? But I was kind of mad with my mom because I'm thinking for 30 days, right? You're in the hospital. You didn't write me a note. Didn't say, Jamie, this is what I'd want for you. This is the woman I want you to grow up to be. Or even, I love you. None of that. Now, I know it's not logical because a paraplegic can't write, okay? But I was mad anyway. So my grandmother, her mom, and my uncle, they took me in and they raised me. And my uncle was actually there when my mom got killed. He used to always say that he wished it had been him and not her. And it was pretty sad because I saw my uncle lose his life inside a bottle of vodka bit by bit over the years. And we never talked about what happened to my mom in the house, kind of like if we didn't talk about it, then it didn't happen. And, and if we didn't talk about it, then it wasn't really eating us all up alive. But, you know, that kind of made me mad too, right? I was pretty angry at that age. And, you know, I'd punish them. Because, see, by the time I was 12, I was cooking and cleaning the house. And make no mistake, she who runs the kitchen runs the world. Right on? So my uncle hated spaghetti. Okay, so guess what we had for dinner at least two nights every week? I'd be stirring the pot waiting for him to come home from work. He'd come bebopping in the house all happy and hungry and excited, and he'd be like, what's for dinner? And my head would spin around 360 degrees like the exorcist, and I'd say, spaghetti! <laughs> and he'd grunt and head to Burger King. I had power. But you know, I'm not evil. I just kind of felt like a tree without roots. You know, I didn't feel like I had any history. I didn't know what had happened. So when I was 20, I made a major decision. I was gonna find my dad, right? So I go to the Yellow Pages. And uh, I open it up, and lo and behold, there he is, in the Yellow Pages. Phone number and address less than 20 miles away. So I call him on the phone. And I say, this is Barbara's daughter, and I'm coming to see you. And he goes, okay. So I get in my car, and I turn the key. And instantly, I transform into Cleopatra Jones. Do you know who Cleopatra Jones is? Right on! 1970s black exploitation movie star. Cleopatra Jones was a six-foot-four beautiful black African woman who was a CIA agent doing battle against the man with psychedelic platform sneakers and an afro 24 inches that bopped up and down when she walked. Okay, Cleopatra was bad. 
and she drove a stingray. And in the door panels on either side, she had an arsenal of weapons. And Cleopatra Jones in the 1970s had a car phone. Okay? It was the size of a tire, but it was a car phone. So Cleopatra Jamie Jones is driving her Nissan Stingray with a water pistol in the glove compartment on my way to see my dad. So he must have been kind of scared that I was going to spray the room with bullets because when I got in the house, there were 30 people there. So I'm thinking, what would Cleopatra Jones do? So I'm hobnobbing with the crowd. I'm smiling. I'm checking everything out, right? And eventually the crowd thins and it's just me and him. And I do my Cleopatra stance and I say, I came here to find out why you killed my mother. And he said, it wasn't me. What do you mean it wasn't me? You know, I'm ready. I'm going to get the water pistol now. It wasn't you, what do you mean? And he says, I turn around to go and he says, I would have never killed your mother. I loved her and I would have never taken your mother from you. He's got me now. So he con continues to tell me this story of espionage and intrigue, that my mother was in fact a femme fatale embroiled in a conspiracy, and he didn't kill her in fact, it was a police officer that killed her, the pigs. And that when she lay dying, he held her in his arms, and she looked up at him with her last word, and she said, Oh, God, I love you, Jimmy. Jimmy? That's what the hell you said? That was your last word, Jimmy? And I'm mad again. But he's the only person talking to me about my mom, you know, telling me about her smile and how she looked. So I'm holding on to him. And one day he calls me on the phone and he says, You know, Jamie, I never did anything for you as a kid. So I want to do something for you. Okay, Dad, cool, great. He says, I'm gonna take out a life insurance policy and I'm gonna make you a beneficiary. Somebody here knows where I'm going. I said, good looking out, Dad, right on. He says, it only costs $800 down. Well, Dad, $800, you know, I'm working full time, I'm in school, $800 for security. A person needs security. Well, you know, Dad, $800. You need that security, it's the only thing I can do for you. Okay, Dad, here's the $800. Here it is. Right, good looking out. Yeah, okay, Dad. That was the last time I ever saw my father. So I decided, well, maybe he wasn't telling me the truth. So I'm going to go to the quarter-quarter sessions, and I'm going to look up my mom's murder trial, and I'm going to find out what really happened. So I go over there. And they tell me, you've got to look it up by the name of the person, not the victim, but the criminal. So I go in. I'm expecting to get a file of one murder case. Well, honey, his file was about six inches thick. This man, this bad boy was really a bad boy. He had convictions in multiple states. I mean, he was an entrepreneurial criminal. He was all over the place. Years even before I was born. Anyway... And he wasn't a Robin Hood, rob the rich to give to the poor kind of criminal. He was kind of the kind that made terrorist threats to little old ladies criminal. I couldn't even be proud of that. So I, find, I finally find the transcripts of my mom's trial. And I find my uncle's testimony. Remember I said he was there 
when my mom got killed. And so I read the testimony and my dad kind of got it wrong. Here's what really happened. My dad knocked on the door. My mom opened the door. He shot her in the throat. My mom fell forward. He stepped over my mother and started shooting into the house at everyone in there, not knowing whether I was in there or not. And then he ran and left her lying in a pool of her own blood on her front stoop. But here's where it gets interesting. My uncle came out and picked my mother up, laying in her blood, and my mother looked up at my uncle, and she did not say, oh my God, I love you, Jimmy. What she said was, oh my God, I love you, Jamie. And there it was in black and white. My mother crossed time and space to let me know that I was her number one and that she was thinking about me and nobody else. And guess what? Tonight in front of all you beautiful people, I can say, Mommy, I love you back. Thank you. This is Lisa Mitchell with a song called Spiritus. Well, we'll get back to the show in Philadelphia in just a second, but I wanted to remind you that this episode is brought to you by Shutterstock.com. At Shutterstock, you'll find the perfect image or video for your next creative project. Could be your website, a publication, an advertisement, a video. You can choose from 20 million high-quality stock photos, illustrations, vectors, video clips. Many contributors to Shutterstock are professional photographers, and Shutterstock reviews each image individually and carefully for quality. You can search for images by uh, subject, emotion, color, and more. Shutterstock has an award-winning iPad app, an excellent customer service, 24 hours, flexible pricing. You can choose individual image packs or a monthly subscription. We used Shutterstock.com for the creation of our risk-show.com website. And you can try it today by signing up for a free account. No credit card needed. Just start an account and begin using Shutterstock. Once you decide to purchase, use the offer code RISK11 and new accounts get 30% off any package. That's Shutterstock.com for 30% off new accounts. Use the offer code RISK11. Our next two storytellers are R. Eric Thomas 
and my friend Becca, two more remarkable stories. But I would like to say that Becca's story, the final one on this episode, is perhaps one of the riskiest stories that's ever been told on the show. And so I am profoundly honored that she did take such a risk and share this story with us. And I'll have more to say about it at the end of the episode. And so now, back to Risk, live from Philly. next storyteller again someone i've just been thrilled to meet he's been so entertaining and so so much fun to work with uh it's been so interesting the different nuances that we've been going over in his story Uh, he has a podcast called the world exists the world exists podcast so please welcome to the stage mr r eric thomas So I moved to Philadelphia when I was 25 years old. Um, it was February, and I had been drunk since the day before Thanksgiving. Um, pretty, like, pretty consistently. At Christmas Eve, I was high. Um, so, you know, just for, because this is true stories, I want to make sure you all know what's going on. Um, I, at the time, I was living in Baltimore. I was living in my parents' basement, and I was working at the Hard Rock Cafe, and I was uh, having a clandestine affair with one of my coworkers, a black albino who was on the down low. Um, so, so, so things were good. Um, and, uh, my, my dad became really obsessed with, like, making sure that I had, you know, a plan. He was, like, really just wanted to know that I had something going on for me. He cornered me once as I was coming home, drunk as usual. I, I had spent the day in D.C. at the, the World War II Memorial, um, just drinking a bottle of Jack Daniels, because, because I'm a history buff. Um, and he's like... He's like, what's like, son? You gotta have a five-year plan, and uh, you know, and I, like, I literally at that point, my, my five-year plan was literally like a, like a sound effect. It was like, <laughs> but I had an inkling of an idea. Like I, I had a drunken conversation, and I decided that I was gonna move, and I, I had a plan, and it started with a P, and that rounds with P, and that stands for Philadelphia. Um, so I was, I was going to move here. Um, and, you know, I thought, well, maybe, I'll, maybe I'll, I'll get a better job or, you know, maybe my arts career will take off or whatever. Or, but more importantly, the most important thing, the thing I was missing most of my life was maybe I'll get away from the albino and I'll get a real boyfriend for the first time. Um, that was really, really important to me. And, like, I figured, well, there's a lot of gays in Philadelphia, you know, like they, and it's great to be gay in Philadelphia. Like, they made a whole movie about how great it is to be gay in, in Philadelphia. Um, but, um... So I was really, I, I was really excited, and so I did what you know, I did what I knew how to do. You know, I perched up at the bar, and in Baltimore, there's two gay bars, and they're across the street from each other. So it was really like you just see the same shit over and over again, like you know, like nothing, like the ghost of Langston Hughes going from like stall to stall, like nothing's happening. But in Philadelphia, there was a, like six gay bars, so I was like, oh. And I would just perch up at the bar, and I made myself sit there. And I would sit there, and I would just wait and, until somebody talked to me. It's like the Lana Turner style of getting a boyfriend or, um, or whoever got discovered. Whatever. Who cares? Anyway, I didn't Wikipedia it because I was like, I don't care. Um, 
and I would just sit there, and I was like, you can't leave um, until somebody talks to you. And more often than not, I would just sort of black out. Um, <laughs> but the good news is I got to play my favorite game, which is called Census Taker. And you can play this at home. What you, what you do is you, you, know, you wake up next to a stranger, and then you turn to them and you say, oh, and, and what is your name? And what is your race? Uh-huh. Uh, and how many people live in this house? And where am I? And that, that was romance. You know, and it, and it occurred to me that there was maybe something more that I could be doing. Maybe there's a different way of being, but I, you know, like, 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 like in a romantic comedy, like, like Sandra Bullock meeting somebody in a coffee shop or something ridiculous, but I couldn't figure out how to do that. Like, there was a certain way of being, knowledge of being that I didn't, I didn't have, I didn't get. And I decided, you know, while over drinks, that it was because I was gay. And because, you know, gays don't learn how to do that. And I know that's not actually true, but, you know, I'm the one who's telling the story, so I can say it. So, yes, it's, not, it's true. Like, gays don't know, gays don't learn how to be human beings. Um, but it's true, like, in high school, you know, when, when my classmates were pairing up and experimenting and trying things out and learning how to be kind of adults, I was playing supporting roles in Anything Goes and Little Shop of Horrors um, and, you know, various other things, which I was very, very good at. Very, very good at. Very good at. Very good. And so I, I got to Philadelphia, and I, I sort of had this foolproof uh, plan, with a capital P, where I would just sort of sit at the bar, and, and, and I did that. I did that a lot. I did that, you know, on Tuesdays and Wednesdays mostly, and also Fridays uh, and Saturdays. And, uh, Mondays, definitely, and Sundays, which is a good special at, uh, at Uncle's. And, oh, and, and Thursdays, um, so, so every day. Um, and, I, and, and the nights when I got to play Census Taker um, started being outnumbered by the nights when I would sort of wake up uh, in the, the floor of my, my laundry room in, in, uh, in my apartment building, and, um, you know, and, and which is fine because there's sheets down there and it's warm. Um, but you know, there they, and, and, and things got weird, and there was nights of weird violence, and 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 I kept thinking, like, I'm just trying to find a boyfriend. I don't know why all this crazy shit is happening, and then and I would get glimpses of my life of, of what it really was going on, and like the, the empirical facts of what is going on today in my life, and it scared me, it terrified me. I didn't know what to do about it, and and I and I started, I just ran from it. I ran from the idea, and I was just like, well, you know, just another drink, and it's go, it goes away, and I, and I kept running, and eventually I, I had to. I had to stop running, um, mostly because I'm asthmatic. Um, and um, and all, you know, I was, at the time, I was a pack-a-day smoker, and I was a little heavy because I like to eat pizza at 4 in the morning and wonder what happened. And, um, and so, so I, I figured out something has to change. And you know, the obvious became bl- blindingly obvious. Um, and so you know, one day, I was like, well, I'm just not going to have a drink. And, um, and, and then the next day, I didn't have a drink. And, and then, you know... I eventually quit drinking, which is really annoying. Um, and it's just like it's just like when you see in the movies, with the folding chairs and the coffee and the crying and the, and the nonsense and the speeches and everything. It's just like that. But it's also it's it's like nothing I I had ever experienced. It was I sort of was learning how to be somebody somebody new. Um, it you know, and there's this thing that they say. Well, I'm, and um, there's a, a, well, no one had actually ever said it to me, but I saw it in that movie 28 Days with Sandra Bullock. So, um, it, you know, you're, what you're supposed to do, you're supposed to get a plant. And if you can keep the plant alive for a year, then you can get um, a, a pet. And then if you can keep the pet alive for a year, then you can get a boyfriend. And then if you can keep the boyfriend alive for a year, then you can marry him. And I was like, that's a, I like a plant. I have a plant. So I, just, I didn't have time to like, go to a plant store with Lowe's. I don't know. So I just grabbed some crocuses from Rittenhouse Square, put them in a pot, and was like, thrive, motherfucker! 
and, and it was around that time that I met EJ. Um, uh, EJ was this guy that I, I, I met at the gym. I had a lot of time around the happy hour, so I decided, you know, I contribute to the gym every month, like the United Way and Planned Parenthood or whatever. So, you know, I, I should see what this is all about, you know? And um, I met him at the gym, and he had, like, he was, he actually goes and, like, does things, you know, at the, at the gym. And, um, and he was really fit and really good looking. He was built like a rugby player, and he had these pecs, which had this, like, gravitational pull. And, like, the first time I met him, I just, like, motorboated him because I have, like, boundary issues. And, and, it, and it just so happened that, that he was looking for a, a, a roommate, and it just so happened that I was looking to, you know, make some changes in where I was living. And, and so we decided to move in together, and I thought, oh. We're going to do it. Because what I didn't mention is that EJ was gay and hot. And, you know, I, of course, am gay and hot. And, like, I've seen porn. Like, that's what happens. Like, when two people, two gay dudes live in a house, you know, they're just, like, sitting around with, like, one poster on the wall. Like, and eventually, like, one of their dicks falls in the other one's mouth. Like, and, like that's okay. And that happens. And I'm okay with that. I am okay with that. And I didn't think it was going to be weird. I really didn't. Because, you know, I, I wanted, like, I want to sleep with, with all my friends. I really do. I, because like, you never know what somebody is like in that area until you're, like, in that area. And, um, you know, I just, I just have this abiding curiosity uh, in the human condition. I'm like the Ira Glass of sucking dick. <laughs> And, and so I was just like, oh, yeah, we're going to do it. Ah, But we moved in together and set up house, and I'm walking around in my underwear like, ah, lovely day. And we didn't end up sleeping together. Um, we became friends. And that's when shit got weird. Because I, 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 I don't know how to be friends with gay dudes. <laughs> I, that's literally just science fiction, like gay friendship. I don't, I don't understand it. I, I don't understand how to be friends with straight dudes either, or lady dudes, or any kind of dudes. I don't understand what, how to do that. But we, I, I sort of started playing the role and pretending. And we would like, go to the gym together, and I'd be like, oh, yes, so life, isn't it interesting and platonic? Ha, family guy, fascinating. And eventually I started to, to you know, because we're going to the gym together, I started to actually get, like, you know, pretty hot. Um, I do say so myself. And, like, not, you know, I lost weight. And, like, I didn't, I didn't look the way I look now. I'm carrying some preemptive uh, Thanksgiving weight um, for next week. But, um, you know, you always be prepared. But, um, but I, you know, I, I actually started looking good. And I thought I should treat myself. Um, and there was one thing that I hadn't done. I used to go to this after hours club every night um, because, you know, if the bar closes at 2 but the after hours club closes at 3.30, there's so many more opportunities for boys to love you. And um, <laughs> in the alley. Um, and, but they had this one night that I'd never gone to because I was like, you know, I had a gray goose gut and I was a little shy and I was a little sloppy. And it was, it's, it's called the Boys of Summer Party. And it's a pretty high concept. And I don't have a lot of time to explain it to you, but I'll try it. It's like it, it, the uh, gay guys go to the after hours club in their bathing suits. And, um, and that's the concept. Um, <laughs> so, I guess it's like six pages. I just didn't skip. Um, and so I. And so I um, so I, you know, strapped myself into this, like, like, little piece of twine, and, um, 
and and I, I hitched up my britches and I went to went to uh, Voyeur, the After Hours Club, um, you know, which is like, look, don't touch, you weird motherfucker. Um, and I and, you know I checked my pants and shirt at the coat check, um, and and I entered this, this arena with three floors of lasers and boys with hula hoops and shot boys and. And, and tan boys and pale boys and hairy boys and fat boys and everybody's got the balls out. And I felt like Cinderella <laughs> at the balls. <laughs> and everyone was like, really, everybody had a little bit of liquid courage um, in them, you know, except me. I, no, I'm lying. Like, everybody was like lit up. Everyone was like tits out, like done. Um, and, and I, I wasn't, and I was just like, well, you can do this, you're good, you're good, you're a human being. And so I'm like walking through with my, with my bathing suit, and there was this thing, I don't know if it's something that happens every year, or just like, this was the first year, a new thing we're going to do, where like, if a guy was like, interested in you, he would just like, take his thumb and like, just like, run it like, along the back ridge of your bathing suit. It's just like, like, a, like a mom, like, you got some schmutz on your ass cheek. Just like that, and so guys, you see guys doing that, and like a couple of times it happened to me, and I was like, oh, "Thank you, I, I don't understand." It was very made me very nervous, and you know, by the uh, by the time the clock struck midnight, I, I you know I turned to a pumpkin. I was like, "I, I gotta go," um, and and I, I felt uncomfortable. I, I was like, "I don't I don't know how to be in this scenario," and I you know I didn't I, I was like, "Well, you know, the easy thing is to just you know knock back a, a, a ten or twelve martinis, and um, you'll be back to normal." But I, I didn't want to do that. Um, for some reason, and so I, I went back to the, the coat check and I retrieved my my pants and uh, you know a little little bag. And this man comes up to me and he's like, "You're drunk," and he's, he's spilling his Jack and Coke down my leg a little bit. And he's like, "I saw you upstairs," and I was like, "Oh, I, well, I saw you too." So we both have eyes. So there we are. Thank you. <laughs> and he's like staring at my butt and he's like, mm. I was like "Thank you again." <laughs> he's like, "I." I, I just want to touch it. And I was like, well, let's look with our eyes and not our hands, Helen Keller. <laughs> he didn't seem to hear me. He was like, I just want to explore it. And I was like, whoa, slow your roll, Magellan. And but like, <laughs> apparently he didn't hear that last one because he had just switched his strength into different hand and he reached his thumb down and he ran it under the rim of my bathing suit and he didn't stop there. He popped it right into my asshole. Which is a thing. <laughs> and so I, I graciously removed myself. <laughs> Namaste. <laughs> and, and I retreated to the alley where I put on my pants and returned to my house. With my roommate who I don't sleep with and the two fat cats that hate me. These fat cats hate me so much. <laughs> the next morning I was uh, making breakfast and my roommate, he didn't go to the party, he asked me how it went and I'm like, oh, you know, it was great, you know, lights, go-go boys, thumb up the butt, the usual. <laughs> and um, we were chatting about boys and just in general, that's what we do and he's making coffee and I'm 
stirring some eggs. And, you know, we're both on this dating site uh, called OkCupid. And, you know, have this little algorithm that matches you, like, friend percentage and, and, and match, romantic match percentage. And we didn't, never actually looked at each other's profiles. It just it, we didn't come up. And so we looked them up while we were making breakfast. And we were a really good friend match, but, like, a pretty poor uh, uh, relationship match. And stirring the eggs, and I was just like, huh, well, it's a good thing we're not trying to date. Um, and, like, the air in the room just, like... <laughs> And the cats were like, ooh, shade. And they just like... <laughs> and these things shit in their own, like, shit in boxes. And they're like, no, you all are a mess. <laughs> and uh, I, it, it just... She got weird. And I, uh, I, I didn't turn back from the oven. I didn't, I, I didn't know what to do. And I said, oh, yeah. No, yeah, it's, it's weird, right? And he was like, yeah, no, it's, it's a good thing. We're, we're not drawing a date. And I um, mustered up some nerve, and I was like, well, you're, I mean, you don't, you don't want to date me, right? And he's like, no, no, you, you don't like the Phillies. I was like, no, I don't know. I mean, I don't not like them. I just don't know who they are. Like, <laughs> and we sort of just got, uh, got quiet. You know, I, I used to say a lot at the bar, you know, I, I never learned how to be. I never learned how to be. Kids these days that come out of a womb shouting, rah, rah, ooh, la la. But I don't, I don't know. Like, I, maybe there's just not a map. And maybe, maybe the map makers, the Magellans, are, are, are us, standing in our kitchens, having awkward conversations, learning how to be. You know, and so maybe, I don't know. When my dad asks me what my five-year plan is these days, I, I tell him, I, you know, I don't know. I'm just trying to learn how, how to be. So eventually the, the air in the, the kitchen warmed back up and the, the, kid, the cats returned. <laughs> Eggs were done and the coffee finished. And, my, and EJ poured me, a, two mug, poured me a mug and poured himself a mug and made it mine just the way I like it. Splenda and the sugar and a little cream. And uh, I made him a plate of eggs, and we sat in the kitchen that we share together. Thank you. Our Eric Thomas. That was so very gracious of him not to reveal that I was the guy who stuck his thumb up his ass. <laughs> no, I would never do that. I'm well aware that the middle finger is much more effective. <laughs> you know, I sometimes come down here to Philly to teach, and I taught a sketch comedy workshop a couple years ago, and this young lady was like the star of the class. She was like super helpful in every way, helping every other student prepare their sketches and all. But she wrote a sketch that killed me, absolutely killed me. It was a woman runs into another woman in the park uh, and the, the woman in the park has a baby. And the one woman is like, oh my God, your baby is so cute. I just want to eat him up. I just want to eat him up. I just want to eat him up. And then she does. <laughs> And the special effects were amazing. And it was just a complete bloodbath on stage. But 
a very, very memorable moment of comedy. Uh, and she's a very special person, and she has prepared one hell of a story for us tonight. She improvises at the Philly Improv Theater. She's a stand-up comic. She has an open mic show on Sundays at Fergie's. Please welcome Becca... When I was uh, 20 years old, I was a sophomore in college at Bard College uh, in upstate New York. I, yes! I studied uh, philosophy and religion and got some philosophers here. Um, and, and I smoked a lot of pot. And not going for applause, but I'll take it. I smoked a lot of weed, and um, I isolated myself from my friends. No one's going to woo that? Uh, I completely isolated myself from my peers. Um, I was going through a lot, of, a lot of emotional pain at that age. So when I was two and a half, uh, my dad died. And um, at two and a half, it kind of hardwired me in like a strange way, like a way where I was kind of yearning. So when I was 20 years old, I hadn't really dealt with his death at all. And I had realized that as I got the distance from my home that I hadn't, it was like this elephant in the room and I hadn't quite gone through the grieving process at all. Um, so as I was in college, I was kind of going through that grieving process in a very delayed fashion on my own. Um, and what I wanted was I wanted to transcend and I became obsessed with this idea of transcendence like letting go of the veil of Maya and having it revealed to me that everything in the world was an illusion and you know I, I wanted that to happen kind of because I wanted to get away from my own emotional pain that I'd built up over the years over the lifetime um, but it's easy when you study philosophy or religion or psychology to take your own emotional issues and just project it onto the universe. Um, but I wanted to transcend, and I thought that the way to do that was to take mushrooms, um, hallucinogenic drugs. I actually, I, I, I proposed, we were, uh, my friends and I were doing a three-person like theology tutorial, and I was like, guys, we need to tell these professors that we deserve to take mushrooms as part of this class. Because this is part of the deal. I don't want any dichotomy between being spiritual and studying spirituality. We're going to do this. It didn't, it didn't fly. Um, it didn't fly at all. Um, and uh, I, took sh I took shrooms, and I'd never taken them before. And it was okay for a couple hours, and then the come down was really terrible. And I felt suicidal for the first time in my life. I I actually took the shuttle bus into the nearest town to get rope to hang myself and also ice cream and Snickers bars because I never afforded myself that luxury. Um, but I ended up just coming home with Snickers bars and ice cream because the, um, the hardware store was closed for the night. Um, thankfully. Uh, yeah. And the next morning I woke up and I was still really confused, and I had more mushrooms, and you shouldn't buy mushrooms in bulk when you don't have good self-control on a day-to-day -day basis. Um, 
And so I took more mushrooms just because I, I was so fucking confused and I wanted to escape that feeling of confusion and I wanted all this stuff to go away and I wanted to almost like get to the next level of a video game where everything, you know, before it doesn't count and I see it as, as bullshit and all that deep pain inside is gone. And um, it didn't work out like that. Uh, I, I, I was so hyper-religious that um, I, I drew a somewhat... Uh, I'll grant you illogical conclusion that I was in fact the Messiah. Uh, guys, my birthday is December 24th. It's close. It's close enough. I don't know. Um, no. And I told I told my my relativism professor. I saw him outside the dining hall. I think I'm the Messiah, which you would think would be like really awesome news. Like, good for you. Hey, here she is. Um, but I told it to him like I was agitated and confused because deep down a seed inside of me knew that that was not correct. Um, so I told it to him as though I was like, I pooped my pants. Like it made no sense. Um, and he rightfully sent me to the guidance counselor who sent me to the hospital. And I was in the hospital for a few days. It was great. It was a nice, it was a nice manic hospital visit. They had karaoke. I did getting jiggy with it. I'm not lying to you. The first time I've ever been able to do karaoke was in a mental hospital because I had no walls left. Um, and uh, it was all well and good until, you know, uh, they released me a couple days later and my mom came to pick me up and she was fucking pissed. This was finals week and she was pissed that instead of studying for my finals, I was taking matters into my own hands and taking shrooms and getting hospitalized. And I got sent home, and um, it's kind of a blur, but um, the first, the couple days I was home, I, I remember just her anger seemed like this evil force to me. Like, I mythologized it. Like, it wasn't just my mom so angry and I feel alienated from her. It was like, this creature is, like, different. This is something that I don't know. This is a force that I don't recognize. And I, I unfortunately found a joint in my art history book, in the pages of my art history book. <laughs> I used to save some for later so I don't, wasn't, like, fiending, like, finding little pieces out of the carpet. Anyway, um... <laughs> Whatever. Um, I smoked a joint and I just detached, you guys. I just, here's reality, and I just floated off away from it. And uh, my mom could tell that something was really severely wrong with me because I was so confused and agitated and anxious. I had written in my body, like with highlighter all over, like weird religious sayings. And I actually went into the garage and like wanted to light myself on fire with gasoline, but I couldn't find a good place to do it because we lived on a cul-de-sac. And there were like neighbors everywhere mowing their lawns. And I was like, you know, if I set myself on fire, someone's going to find me. I'm going to get burnt. It's, I'm not going to die. I'm going to have this just part of me will die. And it won't be a good part. And she, got, she took me to a doctor. She, my mom took me to a doctor that, that day with all the highlighter on me. And I begged the doctors. I, I looked at, upon everyone with complete mistrust. I thought that everyone was sinister and lying. And I thought that they were imposters. Like, almost like, um, what's that movie? Invasion of the Body Snatchers, where someone had taken over their bodies. And I didn't trust any of these doctors. And I begged them 
can I, can I just have an anxiolytic? Can I have an anti-anxiety pill? I don't know what's real. I don't know what's going on. I just need an anxiety drug. And they said no, because it was habit forming and I had a drug habit. That night, I went to bed and I was, I was talking to this voice or this voice came into my head and I don't know exactly what it was. It was some hybrid between my dad, my dead dad, who I wanted to reconnect with, and like the patriarchal Judeo-Christian God. And the, I was just so upset about my mom and I didn't trust her and I thought she was trying to poison me. And I asked the voice what it was and the voice came into my head and it said, the woman you believe to be your mom is not your real mother. Your real mother is dead and she killed her, and she will kill you, and she can hear us right now. And I was like, what? I said, what do I do? And it said, you need to be brave. And so I thought, at the time, I need to be brave. I need to kill this creature that took over my mom's fucking body and is plotting to kill me and is reading my thoughts. I need to be brave and kill this creature before it like poisons me again tomorrow and I was brave I went downstairs and I opened the drawer in the kitchen and I got out a steak knife and luckily the big utility knife the good quality knife that we have was in the dishwasher that night I got a steak knife and I walked up to my mom's bedroom and she was lying there and she sat up and I took the knife and I stabbed it into her back and I stabbed her again and again and again. And she gasped like that, like if, almost if you like dump someone in a freezing cold water all of a sudden that, <gasps> like just that human need for air. And it was the most viscerally disgusting noise on the planet is the sound of a knife going into human flesh. And I stabbed her and she screamed, Becca, no, stop, stop it. What are you doing? Becca, stop. And I didn't stop. I screamed, you're not my mother. You're not my mother. You're not my mother. And I stabbed her again and again. And somehow we ended up in the hallway. And in the hallway, the light was on. And I could see that there was blood everywhere. And I knew that something was just weird. And I wasn't being brave. And I wasn't doing the right thing. And we had a yellow lab. The sweetest dog on the planet, Lila. And Lila came up to us as I was attacking my mom and just cutting her with a knife and telling her she wasn't my mom and telling her she had to die for what she did. And the dog just came up to us and she was the sweetest dog and she didn't bark. She didn't do anything. She just was present and she was her calm self. And the dog just came and inserted herself in between me and my mom. And I looked at the dog and I knew since I didn't want to hurt the dog, I knew that something was wrong. I'm not a violent person. If I don't want to hurt this dog, why am I trying to kill this person, even if it's a demon as a person? And my mom's family friend, her, her long-term boyfriend from my childhood, was staying over that night because he was. my mom was worried about me. And he came up the stairs and took the knife from me and was like, what are you doing? And I, I fought him, I wrestled him. Somehow we ended up on the steps and I was wrestling him. He was trying to get the knife away from me. And 
I just like started humping him and I was like, what, do you want to fuck me? Is that what you want? You want to fuck me? And he was like, Becca, look at me. And to this day, he says, he thinks that I was possessed. He says that there was something else there that wasn't me. I don't, I don't know. Um, but he called the police and the cops came and uh, they took me away. And I, my, I remember just sitting there when my mom was covered in blood and she was waiting for an ambulance. The cops got there first. And they took me away and I was kicking and screaming in the back of the cop car. And the one officer was just like so like mean and like he had seen it before. And he was like, oh, this fucking crazy bitch is taking off her pants because I took off my pants. And, I was, and the other officer turned around and he made eye contact with me. And he said, Becca, my name is Officer Bradley. I'm your friend. And it calmed me. It was the only thing that just, something clicked and it just caught, like, like what in this scared universe I have a friend? Like, but the calmness just made me more confused. And so they took me to an emergency services place. And I remember the girl cleaning blood out from under my fingernails was so gentle. And I felt like a monster. And this gentleness that she was giving me was so strange. And, um... I mean, I was, I was in an inpatient unit for three weeks, which was almost as traumatic as the attack itself. It was really bad. I didn't have access to sunlight for three weeks. And it was just it was freezing and terrible, and, and I was terrible. And um, I was in an outpatient unit for a couple months after that. And um, guys, I came out of it. like. Gradually, over the course of several years, I, through my behavior, I showed to my loved ones that I'm not schizoaffective or schizophrenic and I don't have bipolar disorder and people don't have to fear me. I'm okay. You know, and that took several years to do. Um, and I'm so glad it, I, I came out of it. And uh, I'll leave you with this. I will never forget the first time I saw my mom after it happened, she came to visit me in the hospital. And she was, she was the most like, vulnerable person that I've ever seen in the world. She just was, she had cuts all over her. They weren't scars, you guys. They were open wounds. They were cuts, and they were all over her. And I didn't even remember just attacking her everywhere, but I had. And she came into the hospital, and she, she, you know, she had already lost her husband, and now this. and. She's sitting there, and there's all these doctors around. And my family doesn't like doctors because the doctors before who wouldn't give me the pill, and my dad died from malpractice. And my mom said, um, I'll never forget, she said, she said, I don't care how much it costs. I don't care what it takes. I just want Becca to get better. And I got better. And my alarm is going off. Our time is up, you guys. Thank you. Thank you.
This is Patrick Watson with a song called Lighthouse. And we just heard from my good friend Becca with a story we call Transcendent. Now, I have to say that Becca went through an extraordinary process of deciding whether or not to share that story, first on the live show and then here on the podcast. And it was incredibly moving to me to see her go through that process meditating on it, discussing it with her mother and her other loved ones in her life, and to see that there was that hope there all through it, that sharing that story might somehow be helpful to someone. Now, Becca's going to sit down with me in several weeks. The two of us are going to listen to that story together, and we're going to discuss and record our discussion, you know, what it was like for her to prepare it and share it and how she feels about it at that point. So look for that episode in several weeks. Don't forget to comment on our episodes at the listen pages at risk-show.com and on iTunes and at the forum at maximumfun.org. And remember, storytelling can be a transformational force, and we teach it at thestorystudio.org. We teach corporate workshops. We teach one-on-one coaching over Skype and much, much more. And also visit us at risk-show.com tour to find out about our next live shows. We're at The Pit in New York on November 29th, 2012 with Lillian Devane and at the Nerd Melt Theater in L.A. on November 30th with Eric Andre. Folks, today is the day. Take a risk.